maybe you've run across statistics like this before, that you can go to almost any major city in the United States and find this. The life expectancy of a child born in an under-resourced or poor neighborhood can be 20 to 30 years shorter than a child born in an upscale neighborhood just a few miles away. That in some neighborhoods, black people with diabetes are having amputations three times more often than diabetics in white neighborhoods. The list of such health disparities is long and disturbing. And a catchy way this story is often told is with headlines like, Your zip code equals your health. Or, What matters more, your doctor or your zip code? Mindy Fullalove doesn't agree with that framing. I think it's very simplistic. Dr. Fullalove is a New York-based social psychiatrist who studies how urban policy affects urban health. The idea that, first of all, that Americans are that stable, that they live in one zip code, which can be equated with their health. And then it leads to simplistic solutions, which is change your zip code, go live in a better zip code, and then you'll be fine. So on both ends, it's, it's not a good representation of what we're up against. And, and this issue of stability is, first of all, Americans are very unstable, but we're also, the poorest Americans are unstable as a result of federal, state, and local policies that have deliberately evicted people from their homes and moved them without their consent. And this has devastating impacts on people's health. So if you're equating the zip code where people live now with their health, you're leaving out the history of, the, of what has happened to them, all their life experiences, and it's the accumulation of those life experiences that's creating their health. I'm Michael Joyce, host of the Health in All Matters podcast. In this episode, we explore race, real estate, and health. We're focusing on the urban black experience, but much of what comes up in this podcast also applies to many marginalized individuals and groups. And let's be clear, the experience of indigenous people in this regard is longer, more complex, and its own devastating trauma. The housing challenges faced by black people living in urban areas are just one piece of a larger American legacy of strategic segregation. But it speaks volumes about something vital to all of us, the relationship between where we live and our quality of life. Let's get back to Dr. Fullalove's notion of an accumulated history of imposed instability. We call this process serial force displacement, a term that Roger Wallace and I coined so that we could put together what we had observed in field work, which was that people were reporting a whole series of experiences in which they were forced out of their homes. And so this has been an incessant part of our national history, the creation of laws and structures that lead to inequality, what we came to think of as a whole ecology of inequality. And in an ecology of inequality, it doesn't matter what your zip code is, your health is going to be worse than it would be if we lived in a decent society where people had a fair chance to make their lives. And so saying some people have like a bad zip code is completely wrong concept of, of an ecosystem in which inequality is what structures everyone's life. But when did this serial force displacement start? To answer that, we need a historian. So my name is Kirsten Delegard, and I am one of the co-founders of the Mapping Prejudice Project, which is at the University of Minnesota Libraries. 
so I, I'm trained as a public historian, which means my professional mission is to use history to connect with as broad as possible an audience, and also to do history that does work in the world. Let me jump in here to say that Dr. Delagarde is a third-generation Minneapolitan. Yes, that's what they call people from Minneapolis. And we'll be using the city throughout this podcast to highlight urban segregation practices. So the Mapping Prejudice Project grows out of my desire to catalyze a conversation in my hometown around our contemporary racial disparities, which are some of the highest in the country. So I came together with a team of people in 2016 to mobilize community members to co-create the first ever comprehensive map of racially restrictive deeds for an American city. And the reason we wanted to do that is we wanted to explain to to contemporary residents of Minneapolis that the racial disparities that we have today, there's nothing natural about them, that they were deliberately constructed uh, through time, through, uh, through public practices like racial covenants. Uh, racial covenants are legal clauses that were inserted into property deeds that um, reserved those parcels of land for the exclusive use of white people. Yeah, you know, I, I, I just came across one on your website that is just amazing to me. It's actually the first racially restrictive deed that appeared in Minneapolis in 1910, when a, the Scott family sold a property on 35th Avenue South, which isn't that far from where George Floyd was killed, to a, a Nels Anderson. Of course, it's an Anderson in Minnesota. And and the deed conveyed what became a very common restriction, I guess, and that is stipulating that, quote, the premises shall not at any time be conveyed, mortgaged, or leased to any person or persons of Chinese, Japanese, Moorish, Turkish, Negro, Mongolian, or African blood or descent. That's right. Yeah. And that moment in time, 1910, that insertion of this language into the property record really changed the course of life in the Twin Cities, in in Minneapolis in particular. Um, Because up until that moment in time, Minneapolis is not a particularly segregated city. So our team has done research with census records to show this, to show that in 1910, there were black families who were buying property and living all over, and that they were building mutual aid networks to help one another um, buy property and to, you know, to establish themselves. So, you know, looking at the city in 1910, it's pretty integrated. Um, So the city could have continued in that way. Uh, but but at that moment in time, city leaders decided that uh, racially integrated neighborhoods, the presence of black families as property owners across the city was, um, was a problem, um, that it was inherently actually a threat to the city, that it was going to destabilize these neighborhoods. So after racial covenants had been in use for 30 years, by 1940, you see the racial demographics of the city change dramatically. And all the black families that were living all over Minneapolis have all been uh, reshuffled into just a couple of small neighborhoods in the city. And then, and then it's interesting, isn't it? Because around 1937, as part of the New Deal, in comes this redlining by the feds and the homeowners loan corporation and what they're trying to do i guess is is minimize risky investments or decrease default loans 
And and how does that fit into the picture and, and segue with, with covenants? Yeah. So um, like you say, um, as part of the New Deal, there was an effort to shore up home ownership during the 1930s. This idea that if you can if you can keep people in their homes, stabilize home ownership, that's going to go a long ways towards stabilizing the economy, which isn't free fall, right? Um, they had to decide at that moment what investments were risky and what investments were safe, and um, race became absolutely central to what was considered hazardous and what was considered safe. So it was um, the neighborhoods were sorted as um, by colors, by green, blue, yellow, and red. And the neighborhoods that had any people of color living in them were automatically graded red. They were redlined, um, which is where the term redlining comes from. If your neighborhood got that redlining rating, it meant that all capital to that area was really turned off, was really choked off. So so what happened essentially is um, if you were a person of color living in Minneapolis, um, as, as racial covenants spread out across the city, there were large swaths of the city that you could not live in because of these racial covenants. Um, and then the neighborhoods where you could live were then um, redlined, which meant that um, there was no capital available, for instance, to buy a house or to start a business in those neighborhoods. And these two practices got coupled in another way because um, the federal government also made the decision in their underwriting manual that if you wanted your neighborhood to have that highest rating, the best terms for loans, it had to have racial covenants in place. So when you overlay the redlining and the covenants maps, they, they fit together perfectly. Two things to point out about covenants and redlining. First, they covered that period of time known variably as the Great, or Northward, or Black Migration, when an estimated 6 million African Americans moved from the rural South to the urban North. Secondly, covenants and redlining were made illegal near the end of that migration with the Fair Housing Act of 1968. But the die, the red die in this case, had already been cast and a new force of displacement had taken hold, so-called urban renewal, or redevelopment. It was an ill-fated and federally subsidized attempt to demolish blighted areas, build new affordable housing, and also make way for the country's new interstate highway system. Both the scale and the impact were massive. Over 2,500 projects in nearly a 1,000 cities, displacing a million Americans, 75% of whom were people of color. Somewhat ironic, we fought World War II and we bombed cities in Europe and then we came back from World War II and we bombed our own cities. That's Tom Fisher, a professor of architecture at the University of Minnesota and the director of the Minnesota Design Center. We called it urban renewal, but we basically wiped out whole neighborhoods um, and many of them very vital neighborhoods. And so we just keep concentrating poverty in certain locations. Again, we use exclusionary zoning and, you know, land value assessments and all kinds of mechanisms to sustain this. And th this is not good for anybody. I mean, it's, it's certainly not good for the people who are trapped in these communities, but it's not good for the rest of the community either. Because uh, the, the real innovations, the vitality of any community comes from the diversity of its points of view the diversity of the voices that are heard. And uh, the more we segregate ourselves, uh, the poorer we all become. 
What starts to emerge in the United States is a dysfunctional pattern, a status quo, really, of disinvestment and displacement that's never really gone away. Most of the laws that made urban renewal possible are still on the books. And if you ever needed a clear-cut example of what's systematic or deliberate about systemic racism, you needn't look further than our homes and neighborhoods. Black, indigenous, and other persons of color have been deliberately and consistently segregated for over a century, much of it at the hands of the U.S. government. The United States is now very much segregated. Now, just two decades into the 21st century, the segregation continues. Now we call it gentrification. Well, it's complicated. Again, urban design expert Tom Fisher. I mean, for example, if you are a homeowner and there's gentrification in your neighborhood and you sell your house, you profit from it, right? What Versus, say, a renter. And so there are some in communities of color who benefit from gentrification, although generally that's not the case. To me, the, the problem with gentrification is, that, again, it is part of this long-going process where we've disinvested in neighborhoods, suppressed their values, and then opened them up to speculation by developers and people of, of greater means to come in and buy property cheaply and profit from it. So gentrification is just part of the profit-making exploitation of communities of color. And um, one of the ways that we're working uh, against that is this idea of community land trusts, where um, there's some ability on the part of a community to control the, the, the price of land, which is actually one of the biggest driving factors in gentrification, and to have some control over what happens in their community rather than simply being the, the victims of this ongoing speculative uh, process that we have had in place for a long time. Before we move on to talk about other solutions, a reminder of why serial force displacement is a public health issue. What we're really talking about is opportunities for health, environments that improve your chances of getting healthy versus environments that minimize those chances. Think about where you live. Are you in a neighborhood that's considered safe and desirable? It was most likely rated green or yellow for best or still desirable nearly a century ago. These neighborhoods over time got the best parks, grocery stores, schools, hospitals, and other facilities. They're usually tree-lined, away from the freeways, and are quiet and safe. Or are you in a red-lined concrete jungle, loud and hectic and unsafe, and with none of those green-lined amenities? Well, the research is extensive and clear. The prevalence, the progression, and the outcomes of dozens of diseases are far worse in the redlined areas. If you doubt it, take just one disease, COVID-19. Over the past eight months, it's become clear. Those in redlined neighborhoods, mostly people of color, are much more likely to get COVID-19 and die from it. Now, I won't imply cause and effect, but I will point to those health opportunities those deliberately designed environments that either maximize or minimize our chances for being healthy. Here's another example you don't hear much about. Red line neighborhoods can run as much as 10 degrees Fahrenheit hotter in the summer because of the lack of trees and the heat radiating off the concrete. This can make many chronic diseases worse. Say nothing of what it does to mental health and air quality. 
representation is important. Virajita Singh is a colleague of Tom Fisher's at the University of Minnesota School of Architecture. She's also a vice provost in the Office of Equity and Diversity and a good person to ask about possible approaches to fixing the health inequities in our cities. So, for example, when you're uh, actually designing a neighborhood or, you know, specific institutions in the neighborhood, even with government involvement, uh, I think there's a lot to be said for adequate engagement of people in shaping their urban context, because often people are engaged at the very end, uh, almost as a token in uh, getting their input rather from the beginning and in authentic ways that are intended to actually shape the development. So if you engage Black people, Black communities, and other communities of color and Indigenous communities in asking about what their needs are and actually actively being allies to the communities, keeping the end goal in mind, I think we can get there. She's absolutely right. I mean, um, that we have processes that marginalize the input of many people and that don't really tap the wisdom of local communities in terms of uh, what they need and what would actually work in certain situations. And uh, so there's a lot of tokenism involved in our processes. Um, I think that we also, uh, we often conflate money and wealth. And we think that communities that don't have money are somehow poor but there are actually many communities of color, many underserved communities are wealthy in other ways. They have incredible social wealth, social capital, cultural capital, um, great talent and skills among uh, their members. And we need a way to empower and to tap all of that often unrecognized wealth, which is enormous. I want to return to Dr. Mindy Fullalove, the social psychiatrist we opened the podcast with. She said something that really gave me pause. She said that through these decades of repeated disinvestment and displacement, we've essentially created a de facto internal refugee population. In short, American refugees, our fellow citizens, seeking refuge in America. The thing that makes health, in my opinion, as a social psychiatry, are strong social bonds in a society that shares resources. When you move people against their will and scatter them, you break their social bonds. And when you have an ecology of inequality, which concentrates all wealth in the hands of a few, you have denied many people resources. So the foundation of health has been destroyed, can't have a healthy society under those conditions. If we want to have a healthy democracy and a healthy society, we have to take this very seriously. We have to stop displacing people. We have to share the wealth and we have to rebuild the social bonds. We we can't just assume that they'll get better all by themselves, that they have to be repaired. So how do we start to do that? One thing is that we are in an emergency and in an emergency, I think people have to take on, everybody has to take on the piece that they can do to help out. Certainly individuals have a role to play, but so do organizations. And many organizations have been stepping up. And so it's organizations doing that, taking up the work of of remembering, remembering what we've lost, respecting each other, which is crucial to getting through this crisis, learning about what's going on, and then connecting to other organizations and to policymakers and to constituents. Each organization acting within its purview. So 
in that way, becoming a role model for society. And how do you show love to the place where you live in the broadest sense? That's, uh, that's what's on my mind. Let's close with Kirsten Delagarde of the Mapping Prejudice Project. I want to start by saying, first of all, there's no one silver bullet. So this is a multi-multifaceted problem that was created through such a huge constellation of practices and policies. So it would be nice to say, oh, if we just pass this one law or if we do this one thing, everything will be solved. That's, that's just absolutely not going to happen. So, I mean, I think it really involves, first of all, turning a racial equity lens on every organization and every institution. You know, that sounds big and scary and, you know, overwhelming for people, right? But that is realistically what we have to do. The other thing that we always say that we are doing is that the Mapping Prejudice Project is making a case for reparations. It's not enough to just say, okay, we're going to stop doing these harmful things. If we really want to make things right, we're going to have to commit the resources necessary to make amends for the damages that have been done. Um, Housing sounds like this very generic term, but it's around home. It's around place. It's around belonging. It's around community. It's so basic to, to who you are as a person and what your connections are to the place that you live. I, I can point to um, several moments, like the one that we are living through today, where the whole city was consumed with this question of radical inequality. And th- there was a lot of hand-wringing about it, a lot of um, discussion, a lot of study. And yet, even with all that awareness, no material gains were made. So I guess I want to see our community take a different path this time and really summon all the resources that we have to make sure that this is the last time (laughs) that we that facing down a challenge of this magnitude around race and inequality around racial inequality because inequality is not something I'm willing to hand down to my kids. This podcast is a production of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. You can subscribe to this series, Health in All Matters, through Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review and a rating. That really does help us reach more people. We particularly want to reach out to young people and their teachers because we believe you are a very important part of the solution. So check out our sample discussion questions for high school and college students. You can find them on our website at sph.umn.edu. Thanks for listening, and take good care of each other.